The Art of Hiding by J. M. Orbit. Chapter 13. Russell Elliot Makes a Stand At eight o'clock that night, any citizen of Wanish Limpley peering out over the bay would have noticed a group of people, all carrying torches, heading out across the causeway towards the island. What they might not have noticed, darting in and out of the shadows and keeping a long wary distance between themselves and the torchbearers, were two figures prowling along some way behind the first group. The torchbearers were a small band of caretakers, including Kat Sanderson, Vesta Kirkpatrick and Van Deven. The shadowy figures, Nan and Tristan. Keep an eye on them, Trist, whispered Nan. They're not too far from the island now and I don't want to lose them. What do you mean, keep an eye on them? Tristan complained. It's night. We've got black water all around us and I can barely see the path in front of me. How can I keep an eye on them? Phew, sometimes it's so dark I don't even know if my eyes are open. Just don't lose sight of the caretaker's tryst, Nan replied. It's our only chance to discover what's so special about this secret they keep hidden. I can't see Captain Mace telling us the mystery behind Wanish Limpy on our way back home tomorrow, no matter how much we try to trick him. If you weren't putting in this challenge to rob me of my title of maddest member of the family, and that's up against a bona fide competition from the Drews, I can tell you, I wouldn't even be out on this slippy path in the middle of the sea on a rude January night. I'd be back at the Pilchard enjoying a couple of bottoms with Tobe and Cayman. No, you wouldn't. You'd be out here, and you know it. The twins picked their way cautiously over the damp cobblestones and never let their minds dwell on what made the sploshes that occasionally sounded from the water so close beside them. The weather front Nan had seen on the rugby pitch earlier that day was beginning to flood in. Fairly low in the sky, the moon appeared to be keeping itself warm from the cold night behind a shifting blanket of thick, quilted cloud, making everything so dark that with each footstep, Nan and Tristan felt as if they were about to walk off the causeway into the black water. Once again, the lighthouse was blocked by the summit of the island and only offered sweeps of light across distant horizons. They seemed to have been hurrying along after the caretakers for an age, when Nan looked forward and then back and realised that she and Tristan were only about halfway across the island. The twins were now in the darkest part of the causeway, where no light from either town or island spilled onto sea or stones. Oh no, Nan sighed. They've made it to the island. We've got ages to go, yeah? Shh, hissed Tristan, and his hand shot out to stop his sister from moving any further. Nan listened, and her heart suddenly leapt into her mouth. Footsteps close by and coming their way from the direction of the island. The person was almost upon the twins, and it was too late to try and avoid detection. Besides, there was nowhere to hide. Instinctively, both Nan and Tristan froze. Someone, sure-footed and in a hurry, passed right between the twins without brushing against either of them. The person carried on towards the mainland, oblivious to Nan and Tristan ever having been there. 
Nan felt too shaken to either breathe or move until the dull thud and squelch of footsteps were lost among the sighs of the seas. The night was so dark that neither Nan nor Tristan could say whom the silent figure had been or make an accurate guess as to whether they were male or female or even how tall they were. One thing was clear, however. By not using a torch, the silent figure had been as keen not to be discovered on the causeway as the twins. It felt like hours before they finally made landfall on the island, but when Nan held up her watch to one of the harbour lights, she saw that the trip across the causeway had actually taken them a little over 15 minutes. The one-ish facing side of the island consisted of a large cluster of stone dwellings huddled behind harbour walls, which extended out into the water like two great rock arms. Captain Mace's boat, Myriad, and a few smaller vessels bobbed peacefully on the calm waters within the embrace of the mighty breakwaters. If the twisting higgledy-piggledy arrangements of streets and alleys that made up Wanish Limpley was roughly based on a partial web system with the Great Sequoia at its centre, Dab Harbour Town was more in keeping with a rigid grid layout, with tiers of streets rising in ordered terraces, overlooking the large cobbled square in front of the harbour. I bet it didn't take the caretakers more than 12 minutes, Tristan said, pointing at the torch beams about to disappear from view around the other side of the island. Mind you, unlike us, they weren't held back by not having torches or not having a clue about where they were going or why the hell they are even at her in the first place and not back in the pilchard with, with a couple of crouchers bottoms, yes, you said, Nan whispered back as they crept along the harbour wall past the man and boy pub. What happened to your sense of adventure and exploration, Trist? Norbert and Wilson would have kicked you out of the Bedlam Trio for being such a wimp. Nanny, never call the one who is known as Le Trist a wimp, Tristan declared. He chooses his exploits and adventures carelessly and, at the moment, does not share your obsession with this mystery you keep going on about. I have a feeling that tonight's outing is going to wind up being a tragic excuse for an adventure when we find the caretakers to be a society of secret Scrabble players or chess players or something. That doesn't explain Jeff, the dodo, or the sequoia, Nan replied. It also doesn't explain why Dad can't keep a job or why most of the Drew sisters are right pain in the rumpelstiltskin. But you deal with it, Nan, argued Tristan, as they moved past the last cottage in the harbour town and up a flight of steps. Have you changed, or have I, Nan? Because, through my eyes, this great secret has got a serious hold on you. As they climbed up a last flight of steps cut into the rocks, Nan pondered Tristan's question. She did not know whether it was due to their mother leaving, or the family moving to Wanish, or the strange dreams, or the conquistadors, or the unusual place that Wanish Limply certainly was, or a combination of all of them. But even she was aware that her behaviour recently had been unlike the Nan that anyone knew, including herself. It was as if she was not in total control of herself and was constantly slipping towards a paranoid other version of Nan Elliot. The steps led them up to a well-trodden cliff path which wound around the eastern side of the island through scrubby grass, stumpy gorse bushes and rocky outcrops where the stony heart of the island had been exposed to the elements. There was no sign of the caretakers now, but Nan and Tristan presumed they were on the right track because it was the only path to be found. Quite suddenly, they found they could go no further. It was not as if anything appeared to be blocking their way, but some barrier was definitely halting them. 
It's the same thing that happened to me yesterday in the library, Tristan explained. What did that muchly woman call it? Security measures? Well, I can understand a security in a shop, Trist, but why would you want security measures on a clifftop? asked Nan, feeling the air stretching and bending around her hand. If you've something to hide or something to protect, you need security, Tristan explained. I take it back, Nan. I've changed my mind again. These caretakers could have something to hide after all. We might just get an adventure out of this yet, he added with rising interest. Neither twin could make out what object was blocking them in the dark, so it is impossible to discover if there was a break or a weak point in the barrier. Nan examined the path behind them in the hope of an answer, but it offered nothing other than a rabbit trail leading away into a thicket of gorse bushes. She felt there was nothing to lose by following the way of the rabbits. In any case, Nan had the ludicrous but increasingly insistent sensation that all the landmarks on the island were familiar to her and that somehow this was the way forward. After only a few steps, Nan saw that the rabbit trail did not lead directly through the gauze bushes, but dipped down into a gully dividing the thicket, although no one could see this from the cliff path. At the bottom of the gully were three large stones forming an archway, in a similar but smaller version to some of the formations at Stonehenge. Ducking down beneath the thorny overhanging branches, Nan passed through these stone pillars and emerged on the other side of the thicket without anything hindering her. How did you get over there? Tristan called out on the other side of the invisible barrier. Nan could not see or hear him, but through gestures directed her brother towards the gorse thicket and in less than a minute Tristan had joined her back on the cliff path. You can't tell me now that this place doesn't intrigue you, Trist, asked Nan. No, I can't, he answered. I'm going to miss this place after we leave tomorrow. Just when you think old Wanish can't get any weirder, it throws up another puzzler and outdoes itself. This isn't Wanish Limply, Triss. This is Dab Island. They followed the coastal path around to the side of the island farthest away from the bay, where the wind charged off the sea in fitful gusts and mild blustery tantrums. On the far side of the island were looming silhouettes of many buildings looking out over open water. Halfway up the hill was a large construction, but it was too far off and too dark to make out any details clearly. However, they could see a narrow road wound down from this building into a small pretty village that throffed out of a crevice in the cliffs, which, in turn, led down to the lighthouse planted on the farthest shard of jagged rocks emerging from the waves like serrated fingernails or dorsal fins. It was the huge ornate building perched on top of the far cliffs that drew their attention, though. This cliff-top building was lit up beautifully, showing off all its columns, statues and intricate stonework to perfection and giving the impression that the entire structure had been carved from light. That building must be the theatre, suggested Nan. Well, there doesn't seem to be any reason to keep all this hidden, though, said Tristan. If you're right, something in one of these buildings is worth a serious heap of secrecy and I'm willing to bet it's inside the wedding cake on top of the cliffs. Nan agreed, and they headed for the glowing lights of the cliff-top theatre. The front doors were not locked. They supposed that on an island that had its own invisible cliff barriers, there was very little need for security. Inside and out, the theatre was unlike any other building in Wanish, with its elaborate architecture and plush fittings. The foyer left the impression that it had suffered from an explosion in a golden-red paint factory. 
the only exceptions being the pictures of past play productions in the theatre, hanging down from the fixtures, displaying the full repertoire of human expressions as different actors stared out over the foyer in the character of their part. To the left of the front doors was the box office, which seemed to consist of little more than a counter to buy tickets. But rising grandly in front of the twins was a central staircase which ran up to the first floor, where it split into two smaller flights of stairs to take theatre-goers to the balconies and upper levels. The twins climbed the majestic central staircase to the first floor and found themselves in a large, semicircular passageway full of doors. On one side of the bar in front of them was a regal set of double doors, one half of which was open, and this led Nan and Tristan into the auditorium. On stage were the unmistakable forms of Cat Sanderson and Norbert Drew, as well as Adrian Elliot, who was dressed in fur-lined winter clothing. There were also a couple of other people on the stage, but Nan had no time to register who they were, as both she and Tristan dived for cover behind the back row of seats. In the brief moment before hiding, Nan's first impression of the auditorium was that it would probably be comfortable and elegant were it not littered with all sorts of pictures. Crouched behind the back row, the twins eavesdropped on the conversation on stage. What about the part of the collection in Puck Road? asked the voice of Norbert Drew. Which they have no hope of reaching, replied the deep tone of Adrian Elliot. Unless Templeton's theories and suspicions were correct. After all, the Crusader Knight managed it, didn't he? Also, Adrian, we have to remember that if they were at large in Wanish and Dab, there is every chance that he may have created more about which we know nothing. Well, what do you all suggest? Asked Adrian in agitation. That we all remain here like cornered rabbits and wait for the next attack? No, that's not for me, Norbert. I say bring the confrontation to them. Both men were so worked up that, helped by the acoustics of the theatre, the sound carried easily to the back of the auditorium where the twins were crouched. Now a gentler voice spoke up to calm the rattled men. It was so quiet, however, that Nan and Tristan could not make out what was being said. They took the opportunity, therefore, to view what was happening on the stage instead. All five figures on the stage were caretakers, clearly recognisable by the staffs they carried. They all wore parachutes, even Adrian over his strange Arctic clothing. The person speaking calmly was Cat Sanderson, whose tall figure stood between Adrian and Norbert, her staff resting against her body, one hand resting on the shoulder of each uncle, while both men listened to her counsel with gravity and respect. Vesta Kirkpatrick stood beside the group, nodding or frowning at the suggestions Cat Sanderson made, while, to one side of the stage, Van Dieven had sat himself down on a throne, one of the many props scattered about, and scanned the auditorium with his keen eyes. The twins froze, knowing how good his vision was and knowing that any movement was likely to give them away. Eventually, detecting nothing, Van Dieven returned to cleaning his staff. The stage appeared to be a shrine to landscape painting. There were smaller paintings, Nan even thought she recognised one that hung in her bedroom back home, and immense canvases similar to the ones kept in Norbert's room. It was clear that the huge paintings had all been backcloths or cycloramas for shows the theatre had once staged. At that moment, the caretakers were stood before a canvas of a winter scene depicting a snowbound forest at the foot of a range of mountains, whose white-capped peaks glinted in the moonlight. No, cat, exclaimed Norbert. We cannot afford to lose you, or worse, have you... He trailed off. Have me turn against you, 
Is that what you were about to say? asked Kat Sanderson, her voice still steady but a little more strident now. It won't happen, Norbert. I'll see to it. It may not be a case of possession, Kat, Adrian joined in. It may simply be a case of returning to your origins, the cloth you have been cut from. <laughs> no offence. Now I have my staff, I have my shoot, I have my flares, I am all dressed up and ready for a date with the sisterhood. You would not want me to disappoint them now, would you? Let me come with you. I know them better than you. I could track them, insisted Kat Sanderson. The potential to lose caretakers in one volatile world is sheer foolishness, Kat. Is it not? I agree, chipped in Vesta Kirkpatrick. So, what are we to do while you're gone? Kat Sanderson asked. Well, I believe there are some of the past seasons still to be checked, answered Adrian. And one of you will uh, keep an eye out for my flares? Of course, Adrian, replied Vesta Kirkpatrick. We'll be going nowhere. I think the past seasons and others can wait, Adrian, Norbert countered. If Moulton believes he has seen a trace of the sisters in this one, I think it would be best if none of us shifts until you're treading these boards once more. Don't you think, my friends? The two women nodded, and even Van Dieven grunted in agreement. The sisters provided more than a match for Templeton, and others before him. Let us not underestimate them. But remember the boy was with the sisters then, said Adrian. We are certain that he is not now. I still make it a condition on you going in there, responded Norbert. We all stand prepared to aid you or you do not go in alone. To be honest, I would be happier if at least Moulton and Gilbert were here as well. Ugh, as you wish, sighed Adrian, but I feel it's hardly the best use of our time and resources. Still, if it is the only way you'll let me go, I concur, even if I am over a barrel. But the first sign of trouble, Adrian, you are to use your chute or light up a flare even before arming your staff instructed Vesta Kirkpatrick, adopting her head-teacher tone of voice. Remember, you may not sense their approach, and the exit will be difficult to spot. I know, Vesta, thank you. Adrian reassured the head-teacher as he put up his fur-lined coat and fastened the cord beneath his neck. I'll be back in no time. Then Adrian used the tip of his staff to make a shape in the corner of the vast picture and stepped into the winter backcloth. Not behind it, not under it, not through it, but into the picture itself. Nan and Tristan could not believe what they were seeing. Their Uncle Adrian looked as if he had been painted into the winter landscape, and if it was not for the fact that he was moving within the scene, he might just have been part of the composition of the picture. Norbert saluted Adrian, who tapped his staff against his head in reply, and then he tramped away into the pine forest through the thick snow. An ethereal blue light now emanated from the top of Adrian's staff, and by its gleam they could see that he was constantly looking about him as he picked his way through the trees. The other caretakers gathered around the canvas attentively, yet the twins could still make out the figure of their strange uncle as he moved out of the soft steel blue of the moonlight reflected up from the snow towards the deeper, darker hues that enveloped him as he entered and then disappeared into the forest. Even though there was nothing to see now but a winter backcloth, neither twin could take their eyes from the spectacle they just witnessed. So, what is Wanish and Dub's secret? Nan asked herself, still in a state of utter astonishment. A man who can enter paintings? Or a painting that allows people into it? He can't do that. No one can, mouthed Tristan in total shock. That can't be done. Tristan confirmed what her eyes had seen. It was no trick of the light, no fantasy or madness of the brain. Adrian had vanished into a painting. 
Suddenly Nan realised she had been holding her breath with excitement, and after the shock of it all subsided, she inhaled quite freely, emitting a small gasp. It seemed to Nan that several things happened at once in the span of half a second. She remembered hearing a mechanical click coming from Van Dieven's direction, and as she focused on him momentarily, something like a shard of glass instantly appeared at the top of his staff. Then Van Dieven was spinning around towards where he had heard her gasp, but Tristan was already tumbling his sister to the floor before any of the caretakers spotted her. The twins kept silent, but it was too late. The other caretakers now guessed that they were not alone in the theatre. Tristan crawled along the back row, leading his sister as far away from the caretakers as possible. When he dared to look through a gap in the seats, it was to see Van Dieven prowling towards them, his staff held like a bayonet or a spear, a crystal at its sharp glinting point. The remaining caretakers were also staring in the twins' direction. Crystals jutted out from the ends of their staffs too, and none of their expressions looked remotely reassuring. "'Who's that?' cried the gruff, throaty voice of Van Dieven. Tristan urged his sister to keep quiet, but Nan knew that the rows and rows of seats did not offer any real places to hide from a group of people actively seeking them out. It would only be a matter of seconds, minutes at most, before they were discovered, and who knew what Van Dieven might do to them. He was almost upon them, his staff poised, ready to strike at the slightest movement, when there was a sudden tumbling thud on stage. Van Dieven instantly spun around to face the new threat. The inn! The inn! cried out a panicked voice. The twins just managed to peer through the seats to see that Molten Shoreditch had suddenly materialised onto the stage. The Pilchard's under attack! The sisters are at the Pilchard! The Pilchard? There was a hurried rustling of clothing. What about the boy? Didn't see him. Just the sisters. Might be a trap. Sounds like loose sails flapping in a stiff wind rang out around the auditorium. And then there was silence. Nan peeped over the seats, but the caretakers had vanished. There was not a trace of them anywhere. Tristan appeared to sprint away at full tilt, but Nan was more interested in the winter scene into which Adrian had vanished. Slowly climbing the steps onto the stage, her head turning from side to side scanning for hidden caretakers, Nan approached the canvas cautiously. She went behind the cloth first and examined it without daring to touch the material. It looked to be a huge but ordinary piece of canvas. Nan brushed the unpainted edges of the material with her fingers, but it felt just as it should do, like rough cloth, made stiff by stretching and a coat of primer paint. Then she moved around to the front of the canvas and the painted scene itself. It was a winter scene of forests and mountains, painted well, but she'd seen better, nothing to mark it out as the phenomenon it certainly was. Adrian was nowhere to be seen. Adrian's usual clothing lay discarded on a chair to one side of the stage. Nan suddenly had an urge to test the picture without putting herself in danger of being drawn into it. Doors slammed behind her and someone called out, but she was not listening. Nan was too engrossed in this remarkable painting. Rummaging through the large coat he always wore, Nan quickly found Adrian's palette knife. She held it up to the canvas. She was not quite sure what her intentions towards the painting were now. However... Nan did not have the time to do any damage as her brother suddenly spun her around. Nan, what are you doing? Tristan yelled in her face. Just examining the canvas, Trist, she replied dreamily. Wasn't that the most amazing thing you've ever seen? You've heard what he said. They've got to go and fight the sisters or something, she replied. Bit of luck, that. We can explore this canvas now. But did you hear what he said? Yes. They're leaving to save the pilchard. It's under attack. 
Then it suddenly dawned on her what Tristan was driving at. Hartley and Dad! But Tristan's expression had turned from disbelief at his sister's behaviour to horror at what he was witnessing behind her. Nan turned to see what had caused her brother's expression and gasped too. Staring back at them from just inside the winter backcloth was Adrian Elliot, his face wearing a confused and livid expression. He appeared as shocked at seeing them as they were of him, and for what seemed like minutes, but it was in fact only seconds, both twins and uncles stared at each other. To the twins it was like staring into some awful distorting mirror, the image both was and was not their uncle. He matched the painting more than he did in real life. Adrian's nose and cheeks were ruddy with the cold, but they glistened a little unnaturally, like shiny varnished apples rather than cold flushed skin. Spots of fallen snow on his fur-lined coat merely looked like flecks of white paint without the delicate, intricate structures of snowflakes, and his clothes looked like a solid mass of black edged with fur rather than the layers of shirts, jumpers, scarf and arctic coat they actually were. Until he stepped out of the picture. It was as if Adrian was suddenly showered in colour and definition in a third dimension, as if all the unreal aspects of his painted image had peeled away like a membrane to reveal the authentic man beneath brushing the snow and the pine needles from his winter clothing. Even that was a revelation to Nan. To be able to take painted images like snow and pine needles out of the picture and into real life. The consequences of even that little action were enormous. What furniture makers or paper making company in the world would not pay a fortune to own this canvas alone and cut down the huge forest inside? What holiday company would not give a person a healthy share in their profits to set up a ski resort in those magnificent mountains in the distance? What are you doing here? Adrian asked in a restrained, rumbling whisper. Nan simply stood gulping, but Tristan eventually answered. The, the, the pilchard's under attack, he stammered. The others have left to defend it. The anger immediately fled from Adrian's face and was replaced with concern. He started running for the theatre foyer and then stopped and turned. Leaping back onto the stage again with a nimbleness that surprised the twins, he shuffled through some canvases on the side of the stage that were about the height of a tall man. Finding the one he wanted, he set it up against a blank wall and beckoned Nan and Tristan to join him. The twins had seen this picture before. It was the same image Captain Mace had in his cabin on the Myriad, which the twins now recognised as a depiction of a quiet corner of the painted Pilchard Inn. Do not be scared, Adrian assured them. Follow me in. I suppose it does not matter what you see now, he uttered. And then he grabbed both their hands in one of his, and while his other hand gripped his staff tightly, they stepped into the picture. Entering the picture was like being struck with a blast of air which hit the nose and forehead first and then swept back over the entire body, making the tiny hairs of the neck tingle with exhilaration. There was a feeling of being sucked in which was both frightening and exciting at the same time. The twins did not have time to dwell on the sensations though because the sight that greeted them on the other side of the picture demanded all their attention. Toby Croucher was lying prone on the floor in one corner of the inn near dazed Sally Croucher who was struggling to get to her feet to attend to her son but failing. A bloodied and lame Gilbert Croucher was standing over his family wielding his staff in a figure of eight. A crystal protruded from one end of the staff, a green point of flame from the other and both weapons were doing damage to the two women who were advancing upon him. 
A third woman was bent over the figure of Russell Elliot, who had stumbled to the floor, a flaming log from the fireplace smouldering on the flagstones beside his hand. These were the sisters. But they were no ordinary women. Each one was beautiful, but they were huge, standing almost ten feet tall, dwarfing even the massive frame of Gilbert Croucher. They wore many layers of long, flowing, tattered robes, covered in mystifying designs which shimmered in the firelight, like the moon on a calm sea. But the most alarming aspect of the sisters was that they were see-through, like ghosts. Gilbert Croucher appeared to be tearing shreds from his two opponents, the severed cloth from their robes floating down to the inn's floorboards where it promptly vanished. The two sisters whirled towards him, trying to ensnare the landlord by casting parts of their robes at him like fishing nets. Every now and again, one of the sisters would unleash a bolt of fabric, which unravelled out as it shot towards its target, and then, at the last second, it would lash out, whipping around with awesome force. It was only by virtue of Gilbert's amazing physical agility, all clumsiness gone, and skill with his staff, that the landlord managed to thwart the sisters' very onslaught. He would see the bolt coming, make a feint towards it, step aside at the last minute, and hack off a piece of cloth with the crystal blade. Spinning his torso around, he would then jab the flaming end of his staff into one of his assailants, who would let out a piercing scream. But one of the bolts had clearly wounded Gilbert's right leg, and another strike might finish him off altogether. Russell Elliot was faring far worse. He had fallen on his hands and knees, and his opponent was on top of him, absorbing Russell into her body. The back of his head vanished first, in through the sister's layered robes, into the place where her flesh should have been. Once there, Russell's head seemed to become a darker but still invisible shade of the sister herself. His face remained thrusted out of the woman's throat, an expression of exhausted terror upon it. All this the twins witnessed in the instant they came out through the painting, but for a few moments it left them standing. Adrian was quicker to react, lunging forward and pressing some catch on his staff at the same time. A flame of blue immediately shot out from the top of his staff like a fierce Bunsen burner, while a thin crystal blade glinting with rainbow colours jutted out at the other end. Launching himself into battle, Adrian swiped at the sister, who was engulfing his brother. A flame leapt across her shoulder like wildfire, and a scream emitted from both the sister and Russell. The sister turned to face her tormentor. The twins could now see the hideous spectacle of the two bodies of the sister and their father joined in a grotesque union. Even their uncle balked at the vision for a moment. The sister lunged at Adrian, but he leapt aside and thrust the crystal point of his staff into the place where her thigh would be. Terrible screams sounded out from the two bodies again. The sister stood back for a moment, allowing the horrified Elliot twins their first close view of one of these dreaded creatures. She had a young, innocent face, with long, dark hair tumbling over her neck and forehead in gently unruly curls. Some of the mysterious designs on the sisters' garments might have represented natural formations and man-made structures, as well as people, but if they had a meaning, the twins could not decipher it. But what was most disconcerting about the woman were her huge black eyes, each one an entirely black, merciless pupil, with no whites and no coloured iris. No part of her was solid, even though the weapons on Adrian's star seemed to connect with some substance within her. She swayed in front of her adversary, as if trying to find his weak point, and then hurled long, gossamer-thin threads of material at Adrian that raked across his cheek, 
Adrian winced and ducked away from the threads, only to be lashed squarely on his left shoulder by a powerful bolt of cloth propelling him across the pub floor. The sister raised herself up victoriously and produced a rippling sensation all over body that inched the hapless form of Russell Elliot a little further into oblivion. At the other end of the pub, Adrian was stood up before she had a chance to advance upon him and ripped off the parachute and fur-lined Arctic jacket he was still clad in, which had been hampering him in the assault. Nan noticed numbly that his left arm now looked to be useless. The sister swelled her robes in front of him in a blizzard of transparent material, but Adrian merely dodged her efforts and waited, playing the crystal point on the edge of her garments, tearing off impossibly thin sections of cloth as he did so. The momentum of the jewel was all hers now. But Adrian waited and waited and timed his strike to perfection. In the moment it took the sister to raise her arm to release another bolt to Adrian, the crystal blade of his staff pierced deep into her hand and lodged there, causing both she and Russell to emit ear-piercing cries. Adrian kept a good grip on his staff and attempted to wrestle the crystal free from the sister's hand. However, the powerful thrashings of her limbs prevented him from doing anything but holding on with his one good arm. All around the crystal wound, the sister's hand was pulsating with colours. Even with agony wrenched across her beautiful, deranged face, she suddenly realised the advantage was hers, and Russell's body instantly tumbled from her robes and lay still. The twins glanced quickly at their fallen father, and with renewed revulsion, saw that the half of his body that had been absorbed by the sister was no longer there. There was no blood or gore, just a dim outline of the form where parts of their father's head and body should have been. The sister bore down on Adrian with terrible menace now. Adrian Elliot now stood puny and vulnerable before her. There was no way he could brandish his staff while it remained stuck in his opponent's hand. More in vengeance over their father than in an effort to help their uncle, Nan and Tristan now launched themselves into the fray. Tristan's penknife seemed to pass right through the sister without making contact or affecting her in the slightest, but his hand was instantly paralysed. The sister immediately responded with a spinning net of cloth, which delivered an almighty blow to the boy, sending Tristan rocketing across and over the bar. The reaction to Nan was even stranger. She had no weapons, and with foolhardy abandon launched herself directly at the swirling, intangible form of the sister, who opened her arms in a gesture of embrace. Adrian yelled a desperate, Nan! No! Nan felt a searing chill, as if plunged into ice water. A sensation like suffocation, and then all went dark for a second, before she was ejected out of the sister's body and skidded to halt on the flagstones beside the fire. There was a strange and sudden pause at that moment. Even the sisters who had finally defeated Gilbert Croucher and were perched over his unconscious body ready to absorb him stopped and stared at Nan. Smiles spread over their cruel faces and hideous eyes as they headed towards Nan, arms held out as if in welcome. The distraction was all Adrian needed. He grabbed the middle of his staff, stuck it in the sister's hand and wrenched it in two. Now he only wielded the half with the flame, but Adrian was sure of his purpose and immediately thrust it into the face of the sister who'd been attacking him. All three women let out nerve-wrenching howls, shattering many of the glasses behind the bar and curdling the blood of most of the people in Wamish Limply. Adrian was promptly thrown to one side with the two pieces of his staff. 
Then the two unharmed sisters swirled robes around themselves and their fallen comrade in a vortex of shimmering cloth, which, when it came to rest on the inn floor, vanished like the sisters without a trace. All that remained was a brief blast of chill air, sucking itself into the place where they had been, which made the flames leap and roar in the hearth. Other than Hartley's whimperings in the corner of the room, the crackling of the fire was now the only sound in the painted pilchard inn. Sally Croucher stirred first, followed by a dazed Toby Croucher, and then a stunned Nan. None of them had anything more than some nasty cuts and bruises. On the other hand, Adrian's left side, apart from his leg, appeared to be frozen, although he was ignoring it, and Tristan had been not senseless along with the massive form of Gilbert the landlord, who had looked so small when set against the sisters. However, no one doubted that the person who had fared worst in the attack was Russell. Nan did not know what name, if any, his condition was, and she hardly dared touch him. The invisible parts of her father were outlined by a dim shadow of what should have been flesh, bone and clothing. But they were still solid because Adrian was cradling his brother's whole head in his good arm. For the first time in her life, Nan saw her Uncle Adrian looking distraught and by the way he was gently rocking Russell back and forth on the floor, Nan guessed her father to be dead. On seeing her distress and being keen to take her mind off the awful sight, Sally Croucher asked Nan to help Tristan, who was beginning to groan with pain, while the landlady brought her husband round with brandy. From the time Adrian and the twins had arrived in the pub to the point where the sisters had vanished had taken barely two minutes. This, then, was how the other caretakers and the other townsfolk who had heard the unearthly cries found them. Landlord, landlady and assorted children strewn all over their local inn and Adrian knelt on the floor weeping beside the half-formed figure of his brother.